Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts Don Abernathy and Jeff Copsetta. What's up everybody and welcome to another episode of the super loud theme song in the background because I didn't slide the volume down quick enough. Welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II based podcast despite the fact that there's more and more World War II based podcasts popping up but we're your favorite because we've been around the longest and he's back from the frozen ice age known as Texas. What's going on, friend? Jeff Copsetta is back. Hey, I finally thawed out, man. Now I know what one degree feels like. Aren't you glad you never signed up for gritty oil? (laughs) 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 Oh, we talked about that on my last podcast. We did the what's in your head video. Um, everybody's heard the horror stories coming out of Texas. The people who had electrical power would get hit with these $16,000 electrical bills. Turns out those were only people who signed up for the wholesaler called gritty oil. And I guess their whole thing was during good times, you sign up for $10 a month, be part of this pack. If you will, you save money in the interim, but in the case of like what you guys experienced when, uh, electricity and propane's expensive. You pay out the nose, and that's why their customers are getting hit with sixteen thousand dollars. Like, not that it's funny. I mean, that'll wipe somebody out. Clearly, they don't expect people to pay those. But I couldn't imagine. I mean, I get angry enough when I open my electric bill in the summer here in Florida, and it's two hundred dollars. I couldn't imagine when it's worth more yeah. than like my used car that I had. <laughs> so, how's everything going, fella? It's, it's going good, man. You know, it's, uh, it's just about to be spring break down here. Um, in fact, this coming weekend, the sixth is kind of the official start of spring break. Uh, you know, cause Texas, we just kind of, we kind of split it up, you know, some of the reads, some part of the Texas will have it this coming week and then it'll be the following week. So we have like two to three solid weeks of spring break in March. Um, so yeah, lots of, lots of programming. Um, well, you know, we got was, an air show coming up. I was going to say you guys are now officially open on March 11th. Obviously, each the caveat being each township, which as it should be, can still enforce it or not enforce it. But I'm sure that makes um, the museums and public uh, places a little more um, open to the idea of reopening, even if they do mandate mask policies. Yeah, yeah, that's the way I understand it. I mean, um, you know, if there's a some kind of an entity that oversees the museum, a board, a foundation, or whatever, a nonprofit, or the town. Oh, yeah, or the town they they have the say. You yeah, know, they don't. It doesn't matter if it's on state land or whatever. They they can run it however they want. So, I, I think people just need to be patient. You know, not every museum, for example, is going to be the same experience when it comes to that mandate. Um, so that'll be interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's at least a step forward. I mean, you know, I didn't want to say step in the right direction because who knows? But it's a step forward. Well, and Lord knows that. Any pl- anybody who needs to open right now are the people who live and die off of foot traffic. It's one thing if you're a restaurant and you can squeeze by curbside service and operate at 25%, which a lot of them couldn't do, but they still had a better opportunity. Um, it's not like museums. Well, I guess they could if they're going out of business. It's not like they can sell items on the internet to compensate for lack of foot traffic because they're whole purpose of existence is to keep maintain and display historical artifacts you don't just turn around and sell them on the internet so you can pay your bills and they rely heavily on contributions fundraising and foot traffic and so it's definitely it's time it definitely needs to be happening for places like that um i don't know i think i expl- not sure if you were here on uh when i last time explained this but um i've talked before and we 
featured it in our videos about the Southwest Florida Military Museum and Library here in Cape Coral. They used to be housed in what was an old um, sweet bay. So imagine um, if the museum you're sitting at now was actually in the footprint of an old large-scale grocery store, and uh, which it may very well be. I've never been to that particular location. But anyhow, through um, the pandemic, their foot traffic died so much that they downsized to the retail space that used to be the Disney store at the mall. So they went from a, they went from a full-size grocery store and so, and they used to have Jeeps in there and, and German motorcycles and all kinds of stuff. I haven't been to that new location, but luckily they're still open, but it's sad to see that they cut their footprint in a half by probably 80%. And so I don't know what they did with a lot of the stuff they had on display because there's surely no room for it in the mall. I wouldn't think so. Well, that's why we do what we do, man. Keep this stuff going, keep it alive, keep it relevant, keep it exciting. And hopefully uh, tonight's going to be somewhat exciting because, um, you know, like we talked about, let's just try to do something different, um, you know, and uh, before we went live here, you know, we talked about some of the TikTok platforms and stuff. And, and I've heard about a video that I think is pretty hot um, about and I guess a lot of museums are doing it. It's like, what's your most expensive artifact or what's your favorite artifact? Which, what was your least expensive or, you know, whatever? What's the most unique? What's one that nobody else is going to see? You know, no other museum is going to have in the world. And I thought, wow, that'd be kind of cool for Don and I to do something from our personal collection, you know? And, it, and, it, and speaking of museums and TikTok, um, you weren't with us last week, but I don't know if you heard the episode, but um, had a gentleman on who works at a museum out in California. And he does TikTok videos showing the restorations of the Jeeps, um, their deuce and a half and some of their stuff. And their videos are getting like 127,000 views. And so it's a great way. That's basically how they've kept um, their education up through the entire pandemic. Because obviously California is more restrictive than anybody else. And so um, on that topic, people who have access to these cool items, they're loving it. Before we get into that, because you told me before we went on the air that you were reading a book and you wanted to suggest, and I have one too, but I want you to go first. Um, nice shirt, by the way. If you sit up, everybody, who's watching this video, he's wearing the, um, that's the dinner K-Ration shirt. You can get that at uh, WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on the merch link, um, or you can go to Teesprings and just search for Digital 410. Um, type in the promo code, all one word, all capital letters, I listen, and that'll save you $4. And um, you guys can help out spread the word that way. And um, I also have on my What's the Scuttlebutt Lucky Strike shirt. I can't tell you how many times I've worn a shirt in public and someone says, that looks like a Lucky Strike shirt. And I said, I know, that's what I was going for when I made it. <laughs> but I was smart. Uh, the, green the green circle is just a tad bit smaller so I'm outside of like infringements. Like if I ever got a cease and desist or got taken to court, they can measure my stripes and find that they're not the same width. And so it's kind of like a song where they had just a little different note in that first chorus. <laughs> I don't get sued for. So yeah, but no, um, we have, we have the, what's the scuttlebutt. We have the shirts with that logo on it down there, which Jeff can't see. We got the K rations, the lunch and the supper shirt. I have to get the breakfast shirts out there, but head over to WTSP world war com. And while you're there, if you're on a smartphone or a tablet, you got to scroll way to the bottom just because the way WordPress works, click on that beautiful orange logo that says Patreon sign up for a dollar a month or if you want one of these t-shirts for free, sign up for the $7.50 month plan. And after month two, I will contact you and I will mail you a shirt of your choice for free. 
And so, and by the way, if you guys sign up for any of the plans, whether it's a dollar a month or seven fifty, um, I'll I'll contact you every once in a while, offer you free stickers. Um, one of the things we've done on my other podcast for people locally is I've been collecting names and taking them out to a local comedy club where we've been supporting comedy for free. And so you get nice little benefits by signing up for Patreon and get some free stuff. Um, a while back, we got a bunch of sunglasses from Pug Sunglasses. I went on there and said, hey, who wants some free sunglasses? Mailed them to you for free. So there are benefits. Um, we also have a podcast on there. It's exclusive to the Patreon. It's called the OG5 Podcast, just like my hat. OG5 refers to you guys, if you don't know, back in the day when we first started our podcast, me and one of my co-hosts at the time were joking around. We had no way to measure our listening audience. And Dave's like, how many listeners do you have? I said, I'm sure we got at least five. So if you ever hear me sit and reference the OG5, that's kind of our joke about our audience. Those are the original five. But even if you're number 5,000, if you sign up for Patreon, I just referred to you guys as the OG5. It's just kind of like you're our parrot heads, if you will. But anyhow, now that all the shameless plugs are out of the way, what book are you reading, sir? Okay, well, it's actually not one I'm reading right now because I want to save that for a, a later episode. But it's one that I just finished, okay. uh, and I know I feel bad. I, I haven't done a, I haven't done the past few episodes with you. That's all right. Um, you know, it's just crazy. Well, uh, I have so, an advantage. I have the advantage when I want to do an episode. I just walk across my house and fire up the equipment. You got to drive across town and find a location with decent internet. So it's not quite as easy for right. you as it is for me. Like this. Okay, we're good. <laughs> His wife's out so, there with a divining rod trying to find a good internet connection. He's got the cell phone. The kid's out there exactly. with the solar panel on a wagon <laughs> trying to get him some electricity. It's it's insane. It's it's kind of like Alaska, the last frontier, but in Texas with the cop set us. But that's, that's maybe we'll do is. that on the YouTube channel another date and time. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I know there's there's been some hype, and then it slowed down. But I think there's some hype again now that they've named it the two main actors for the Hanks and Spielberg new uh, series, Masters of the Air. Um, you know, we're all waiting for that thing to come out. If you've seen Band of Brothers, you've seen I the Pacific, thought that was already in production. They're just not naming the actors. Well, they're just now publicizing. Oh, okay. That. Yeah, I just saw it the other day. So uh, apparently, it's two kids that I, I really hate now because they have the coolest role ever that they could have possibly landed not only that but if history tells us anything if they do half a job as any of the cats from either band of brothers or h how many shows are you watching on nbc abc movies that guy's from band of brothers that guy's from band of brothers that guy's from band of brothers and they turn on yeah. oh if you've seen the movie queen uh lead singer he played snafu in the pacific the bass player played eb sledge in the pacific and yeah. so these are great vehicles for young and up-and-coming actors and that's the nice thing about those movies is they want the no-name actors because one they need young cats to be authentic but two i think personally when you have no-name actors it's easier to it really buy into them being that person could you imagine yeah, yeah. watching like band of brothers if the guy who played dick winters was i don't know somebody you knew right they ruins the whole thing yeah i mean you know when you put like back in the day you put john wayne and kirk douglas and all these guys and it's like you're killing me you're killing it. <laughs> now, with you that know? being said, you did have the Easter eggs, like you had Jimmy Fallon driving the Jeep in the Bastone, in the Bastone right. episode, and then you had Tom Hanks' son playing in two episodes, but those were minor parts. The lead right. roles were always cats that, well, one, most of them were English or Irish because they filmed it overseas, and it was just cheaper instead of flying people over there, but the rest of them, you know, they're just people you may have seen a bit part here and there, but they're never leading actors. Absolutely. Now, I will say, I just found this out, Tom Hanks shows up. In Band of Brothers. No speaking role, but look it up. Did you know that um, Babe Heffern has a stand-in role? I heard about it. I never saw him, though. 
it's on the scene where they liberate France and they're going through the town and the women are all kissing them. There's okay. a wide shot where there's three old men sitting at a table in the middle of the road. Babe Heffern's the one sitting on the left. He's kind of it's yeah. it's kind of a profile shot, so he's not looking directly at the camera. But yeah, he's the one sitting at the table <laughs> in that scene. That's awesome. So the next series coming out. This is the book that's based on. Hopefully, it's not backwards for everybody else. Nope, you're it's good. For me. Okay, Masters of the Air. So this book, man. I mean, it's 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 a healthy read, Donald Miller, but. Um, it was very enjoyable and you know it was obvious the two main people that they're going to cover in the bloody hundredth uh john egan and bucky cleveland i want to say his names were um they were kind of two best friends they both ended up being shot down uh and going to pow camps and those are the kind of the two roles i think those are the two main characters of the series but the book is fantastic because it really it gives it to me it's a very unbiased look at the nitty gritty you know what that what aerial bombing was and the politics behind it and i'm afraid that they could kind of go two ways with the series you could kind of take this book and go you could go one of two ways you could go one where this is what had to happen or there's all that other stuff that adds up that oh america didn't care we just carpet bombed like you look at dresden and we just took we just took german cities off the map but that was the technology well, some of the tactics started changing, and it does become evident, especially late 44 going into early January, February 1945. It was like, look, first we were hitting sub pens because that's what Churchill wanted, because subs were destroying sure. the convoys. So we got to hit the sub pens. And, you know, the Memphis Bell and all those other, you know, the early 91st mm -hmm. bomb group, you know, nailing Wilhelmshaven and, and all these other places on the coast that did absolutely no damage. They, they never really did anything for all those missions. So then it was like, oh, let's hit marshalling yards and the trains. Okay, so they're blowing the marshalling yards apart. And then they're being repaired two or three days later. You yep. know, max. Like, now what? You're trying to hit ball bearing factories. And they're basically hitting everything but the ball bearing factory. Um, you let, know, me, not to, let me ask you this because I haven't read it. I'm going to make an educated guess. Was part of the reason for carpet bombing trying to get the – civilians if you will kind of to turn on the government say hey now they're coming after us we got you know maybe trying to for, obviously hitler didn't care but you're thinking okay we're going after all the logistical places we're going after all the military installations maybe if uh, there were some civilian casualties they'll start kind of you know maybe when the family members of the people in charge are getting their properties wiped out maybe they'll start to lose their taste for the war you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And there was it was kind of twofold. One, because it wasn't the people, um, you know, you, you weren't necessarily taking out the military target. You're trying to take out the people who are fixing the target, mm -hmm. the people who are repairing the marshalling yards, the people who are repairing those ball bearing factories or whatever, whatever the damage was. It's the people repairing it. Um, but the problem with it was it actually kind of backfired. The idea was that, yeah, if you, you start bombing the civilian population, they're going to rise up like, hey, Hitler's the one that did this. We need to stop him because we're the ones suffering now. Or but it actually had the other side adverse. is, hey, we need to support Hitler because he's trying to stick it to these sons of bitches. Well, it, it really wasn't even that. It was because we bombed, you know, when the guys are off in the factories, we're bombing their houses and blowing their women and children away. They didn't want to be home. Yeah. Not they at least they had to something work. to 
yeah, they wanted to get their mind off of it. So there was guys that would bury their families and their house would be in ruins. And the next day they're at work because what else do they have? So it, that just didn't really. But after a while, you just start wearing them down. You wear out, you know, if they'd have figured out that the oil fields were a whole lot more you know, crucial, not just to the to the oil and the fuel, but the byproducts that they were using for it Plastic. that we knew about in the 20s, yeah. um, you know, what they could do. So read that book. If you like anything about the 8th Air Force, if you want to understand how the bombing campaign from front to back, Masters of the Air. I brought up a book um, a few episodes back. This one's just a short little read called Merrill's Marauders. And I picked this oh, yeah. one up and I enjoyed this one. But it's, it's as you can see, it's almost a scholastic book for elementary school kids. It's not a big read at all. And, but as oftentimes happens, and I highly suggest this because this is how I found out about um, with the old breed with EB Sledge long before the Pacific was even in production or even announced. Um, when PBS did the documentary The War, I went out to Barnes and Nobles and they had the book marked down. And in that book and in the documentary, Sid Phillips, who's still alive, reads a paragraph, and it's actually in the book too. He basically lifted a paragraph from E.B. Sledge's with the old breed. And so after reading that, I quickly went on eBay and I got a first pressing of the softback book for $13. Because once again, the show hadn't come out yet. And I read that book and I said to Carrie, if they make another episode, uh, another Band of Brothers, it needs to be about this guy. Seven months later, they announced that they're going to do the Pacific. So in this book, they make reference to a chapter from this book, which is a little more hefty. And this book is called um, The Marauders by uh, Charlton Ogburn. Uh, now, Mr. Tr Ogburn actually served with the Marauders, so this is his first-hand account. And this was published in 1954, so it was very, very um, relevant in his mind. And what I find interesting about the Marauders is they fought the Japanese, but they fought in the India-Burma campaign, which very few people talk about, including myself. Now, what's the difference between the Marauders and uh, the Raiders? The Marauders were the first, basically the Marauders were thought up after a meeting in Canada with Churchill, and they were the first long-range deployment team that was not fixed to any organization, meaning they were dropped off in the jungle and all their supplies came via the air. There was no division waiting for them 20 miles back. They were on their own. Um, all their equipment was carried by pack mule, but what it makes them more interesting and different is they weren't just American troops. They were a coalition. They were made up of, basically they put out an order and I'm going to basically read this book and I'm going to do like a multi-series kind of side project on this podcast with a little bit of productions to get into this so I can share it with you guys. Cause it's very interesting. They basically put, put out, the army put out a memorandum. They're looking for three things. One, they wanted so many troops who had um, combat experience in the Pacific, i.e. the army soldiers who fought in Guadalcanal, etc. And they ran up like 900 of them. They got some of the uh, Chinese army that was part of our allied forces. So we're made up of some cats from the Pacific, some of the Chinese army, and then some of the uh, Indians from the English side. And so this group was actually made up of three different militaries. It was primarily ran by the British um, which could have changed. I'm not that far into the book yet, but it's very interesting. And the way the book, the, the gentleman talks about it, it, it reminds me of, I can't remember the movie. It's not the dirty dozen, but what's the movie where they're, um, 
they're putting together a boot camp. They're like in the middle of the West coast of the country. And a lot of the guys are straight out of like prison. <laughs> they're like the brig rats and all that. Um, anyhow, a lot of these guys who volunteered for this were guys who were wanting to get out of uh, Guadalcanal. Some of them were guys who were fresh out of the brig. And so it was a very ragtag group of uh, just, you know, some crazy stuff. And one, and when they broke it down, once again, I'm only like two chapters into this, so I'm very light on the details. But once I read this book once or twice, I want to get into it. But it's very interesting. Um, on the 3rd Battalion, two of the company's leaders had different ideas of how they wanted to make up their, their squads out of the group of guys that volunteered for this. One guy said, I want nothing but gentlemen who've had combat experience, who have found themselves in a situation where they knew it was hopeless, and they put everything in the hands of God. That's all he wanted. He wanted religious guys with combat experience who have been in a do-or-die situation and survived. The other guy wanted primarily brig rats. He's like, I want the guys who don't care about the system. They're willing to do things on their own accord. Because once again, their whole objective was to be dropped off in Burma and not have any... They were relying on themselves and their gear. And so these two different guys had two different ideas of how they wanted their squads and battalions made up and so it's very interesting and according to the forward in this there was a lot of controversy coming out of the marauders and what basically the americans unit was codenamed galahad and so there was a lot of um i guess after the war which i haven't got to yet there was a lot of controversy so this is one this is the first book in a while i've picked up where i'm like reading every night i don't want to put it down it's one first and foremost i love first person accounts to me if it comes from reading Here's a book on the first ID, or here's an autobiography of a guy who served with first ID. I'm reading the autobiography every time. It's just more interesting to know that, hey, this guy was really there. This is what he experienced. So long story short, once I get through this, I'm going to compile and do a couple of serial episodes on the Merrill Marauders because I don't think they get enough credit, and it's very interesting stuff. Yeah, I'm going to be interested to see if that book will go into if those two company commanders got their way. And they got to lead those those units the way they wanted with those different types of individuals. I'd like to see the after action reports of those of those battles that those mm -hmm. guys got in or, or, or those firefights and how, you know, the brig rats, you know, like you said, they're, they're going to be more individual minded. They're going to be able they get separated. They're, they're going to be good. Whereas these guys that, you know, I guess the other one was they they wanted guys they who had experience. They've been in that situation where they're surrounded and it was basically. I'm leaving it up to God and I'm just going to do my job. And if I die, I yeah. die. And if I not, then okay, cool. What's on the next mission. So it'll be interesting to see yeah. as you're saying, what the outcome was if one quote unquote was more effective or if one ran into more issues or if they were the same. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very cool. So you ready to get into the top three? I don't have any production music for this, but we need like a top three. <laughs> ba -da -ba -dum, bing. Yeah, so well, there. I try to pick three different artifacts. So you know, for for our listeners, if they stuck around this long, and we hadn't already bored them with they already <laughs> stick around this long. What else they got to do? <laughs> I hope so. Um, so I figured I would bring. It may not necessarily be my first artifact. You know, as a kid, I probably had a pistol belt, a canteen, maybe a map case, playing army or whatever. But th this is kind of like the first artifact handed to me from a World War II vet. It was, it was personal uniform items that the guy really meant a lot to me. 
And it kind of is more of like a, not, I don't want to say like a turning point in my life, but definitely where all my interest in World War II as a kid, now I'm like 15 or 16 when he hands me this stuff. Now it was like, I have been chosen to keep this stuff alive. <laughs> you know, like it was kind of, it, it was handed down to you. More, what's that? You were bestowed with this mission now. He handed the, yeah, yeah. He it's handed the scroll fun. down to you. Exactly. So just a quick, uh, a quick, um, a brief on this, on this man. I, I lived when I'm still living up in Jersey as a kid, he was just right around the block and our, our road dead ended into the middle school field. So when I'm middle school age, I'm walking to school. And so I'd pass his house and every morning, every afternoon, he was the guy that th his lawn looked a little bit better than everybody else's, you know, it was a little bit greener and every blade was the same length. Exactly. And, uh, you know, just kind of one of those classy guys that was always out there chewing on an unlit cigar with a, with a Bermuda tan, you know, to that real ruddy complexion, real nice guy. My dad was a police officer. So, you know, everybody knew my dad. He'd always talk to, he'd always stop what he was doing, talk to my dad. And I, one of my other neighbors told me that, oh, did you know, Mr. Cloud was on Guam in World War II. And I was like, oh, wow, I need to talk to this guy. Now, at this time, I was super interested in the Battle of Guadalcanal. Sure. But, but I knew Guam, you mm -hmm. know, okay, cool. So I just knocked on his door one day after school and I introduced myself and, you know, he knew who I was, he knew my dad. And, and uh, I said, I heard you were on Guam. And he goes, oh, no, 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 no. I was on Guadalcanal. Okay. <laughs> and... <laughs> That started, I mean, he was like another grandfather. To God, me. if you only school, had recording equipment back then. Uh, trust me, dude. I think about it all the time. So, you know, those last two years I lived up there before we moved to Texas, I really got close to him. And they had a little barbecue for us at their house. And when we were leaving, he told me, he said, look, he said, Jeff, he said, if you asked my wife or kids what I did in World War II, they would tell you I was a Marine. You know where my best friend was killed. So he handed me this. Nice. Yeah, it's really nice. Is that I mean, wool or HBT? For those for those of you listening to the audio format, Jeff is showing us his OD green piss cutter. Now, is that wool or uh, olive or is it HBT? It's, it's the wool. So he's showing an original wool with yeah. the uh, silk lining. Silk the, lining. The leather, nice leather sweatband. Yeah. And the original EGA. And then... What size is that? Is that a seven and a half? Six and seven eighths. God, they're always so small. I, I wear a seven and a half. <laughs> then he handed me this. Ooh, nice. Yeah, now Jeff has the original campaign yeah. made first Raider. Is that a Raider division or, or is no? That, yes, that's the Raiders. Yeah, first Raider battalion, yeah. Yep. It's interesting. It, does that have the eyes on it? Are they like pinholes on the skull? Yeah, yeah they're, real, they're super tiny. Yep, there they are. Oh, wow, it's even got the mouth, too. That's super cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and you can see on the on the back of the stitching, too. Yeah, I strongly suggest, and I'll take screenshots and put on a website for those of you who are downloading this, but this episode is available on YouTube, so head over to YouTube.com, look for Digital 410, and you'll find it. Uh, this is definitely an episode you guys are going to want the visuals for. Now, this is not an artifact. Now, are these all three of yours, or are these all considered one? This is all considered one. Okay, I just want to make sure because I don't want to. I don't want to, you know, blow our load here in the first, you know, twenty-eight minutes. Okay, so this oh, is no, all man, one. So you have where, the where piss cutter going? and you have his ring. Now is that? Yeah. So the ring. 
It's not it's not an artifact. He wore this. He got this after the war. I was going to say, because uh, the war issued one or the boot camp issued one had, was black and gold, wasn't it? It had like a little black EGA All the black it? is worn off. Yeah. All the black is worn off. But this side has the flag raising on Iwo Jima since 1945. And it's really hard to see. But this is a, an image of the old Tun Tavern from 1775. So he wore this when he went back over in Korea as a reserve. Uh, he actually he was enlisted in World War II. Then he retired as a captain Marine Corps Reserves. Um, and it's, it, the sad ending to this story is, um, I told him, I said, man, I said, I I hope I get to, you know, I want to be a war hero like you. And he said, Jeff, you know, number one, I'm not a war hero. And he said, look, you're never going to meet a war hero. What are you talking about? I meet war two vets all the time. And he said, Jeff, he said, war heroes don't come home. I didn't know what that meant. I was 15, 16. I had no idea what it meant. I tell you what, though, I can't tell you how many times. I've used that same line talking to little kids about Iraq. It, it really rung true. And about four months before I deployed to Baghdad, he, he passed away 20 December 2003. And his wife told me that he got my Christmas card that I mailed him because uh, I heard he wasn't doing good. But then four months later, I went overseas. And ever since then, I've always thought Bob never knew that I now understand what he told me. You know, now... He knows. 20 some years ago. Yeah. And so for, that's and for those my you, first artifact. For those of you listening, that ring is very uh, uh, reminiscent of a modern day class ring. It has the Marine Corps EGA on the top with a red ruby. And then, as Jeff said, on the left side, it has the um, Iwo Jima flag raising. And then on the right side is the tavern. Yeah, Ton Tavern, 1775, birth of the Marine Corps. Very cool, very cool. Now I'm going to actually surprise you with what one I got. Actually, I'm going to cheat a little bit. I, I I have like four here, but I'm going to try to keep the three, <laughs> keep the rules. But uh, the first one is going to be very. At first, it's going to be very boring, really. Um, and it's a canteen that I came across in a antique store. Now, before I show those on YouTube, the canteen. Um, we're all familiar with your normal canteen with your, um, Bakelite top that kind of has the, you know, just the basic indent in the top. You have your threads on the side and then this used to be, now this one hypothetically was more, more valuable canteen is <laughs> the black porcelain. And you would think, well, this would be his more favorite canteen, but we're, and we've also seen the early tops too, right? The aluminum top, just rounded, <laughs> nothing special. What caught my eye about this canteen is I was walking through an antique store and it has the Bakelite lid, but the top is completely flat. There's no indent in it. And I had seen a hundred canteens at all the events I'd been to. And I had never seen a flat top Bakelite canteen like that. I'm like, that's weird as hell. And I pull it out and I go to look at the bottom for a date stamp and there isn't one. I'm like, okay, is this thing reproduction? Cause most of the time your canteen date stamps are on the bottom. This one's on the back. It's a U.S. ACU company, 1942. So it's not super early, but it's still early in the war. And once again, it's got this Bakelite top that's completely flat and smooth. There's no indentation on the top. And so I'm curious about what this, who made this canteen? Now, a little backstory on me is I grew up in, I was born in Kentucky and I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. And my aunt and uncle lived and taught school in a small town called Chillicothe, Ohio. 
sadly now it's known for their meth population more than anything else. But um, back then it was just a small town known for the mead company, the whole mead paper, the whole town to smell like paper. So I did, I came home and I did a quick research on this TASU company. And here's what I found out. Um, the aluminum, the aluminum cooking and utensil company. That's what ACU stands for. The aluminum cooking and utensil company was founded on October 24th, 1901 by Charles M. Hall and Alfred E. Hunt as a, a marketing subsidiary of the Pittsburgh Reduction Company in New Kingston, Pennsylvania. Its industry is aluminum cooking utensils and is headquartered in is headquarters in New Kensington, Pennsylvania. Now this makes sense, right? You got a company that's into aluminum cookware for restaurants and all that. So perfect. Who who better to make canteens? Um, it was sold to the newly formed Westray Corporation in 1982. And this particular company in 1982, I found out, was located from 1966 to 1987 in Chillicothe, Ohio. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's kind of interesting. And it ran under the name of, um, like I said, it ran under the name of, where did I see that? Uh, do, 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 do. Uh, do, 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 do. Uh, so anyhow, I contacted my aunt and I asked her about this company and she said, I wasn't familiar with it, but there are some people at my church who work for them. And so now I'm even more interested. And so I get online, I start doing some research about this particular company. And, um, before it was in Chillicothe, Ohio, it was located in Canton, Ohio, which is pretty cool. And I actually found on eBay, this postcard, and obviously with my ring light, it's going to be hard to see. But this is a postcard showing the manufacturing facility in Canton, Ohio, that is no longer there. And the stamp on the back is actually a one-cent George Washington that if this stamp was on its own, this is like a 19, I think 1919 or 1920s stamp, and it's worth some money if it wasn't processed. But I think it's cool to actually that this canteen company was in Canton, Ohio, a town that I, you know, a state that I grew up in. Later on, moved to Chillicothe, Ohio, and my relatives went to church with some people who worked there, and I was, and I even have a COVID sighting card, postcard from, um, and it's real hard to read. It's actually all written in pencil, and I was able to track down on another website. There were screenshots of a photo album that was sold but they were shots from the factory that employees made. It was a, it was a um, photo album of the um, company, the aluminum cooking utensil company that was taken like inside, like on uh, a company picnic and stuff, but somebody already bought that book. And so as goofy as it sounds, just the, um, you know, cause when we do this history stuff, like I said, I'm into the um, autobiography side. I like to picture myself there or people there. And the fact that here's, my state's contribution to the war, something you want to say something as simple as a canteen, but as somebody who served over in Iraq, you know that this is not simple. This is a necessity. I mean, we all seen the episode of the Pacific when they're on Peleliu and everybody's running around looking for canteens of water because I mean, this is lifeblood and just the fact that has such a weird little cap on it. I've never seen, um, you know, once again, I guess my black porcelain canteen is more valuable, but just the history and the uniqueness of that canteen, it's, at least as of right now, one of my favorite things. Now, 
in my collection, I have lots of favorite things. And for this episode, I tried to pick out stuff we haven't talked about before. You know, we've talked about my flotation device. We've talked about my front seam D ring, uh, actually fixed bill helmet, which I am super excited about, but I wanted to bring a little something new to the podcast. So Jeff, what is your number two? Okay. So for number two, I thought that I would pick something kind of a unique artifact. Um, and it, it's, <laughs> it's going to make you laugh. Um, my, my sister-in-law, I was up to, goat to skin condom? My sister-in-law. what's that? Goat, goat skin condom. <laughs> You're close. <laughs> but hold on. Let me ask you a question. We're going to digress here momentarily. We got time, right? <laughs> oh yeah. I saw TikTok. And I've read a lot of books. I've been in this hobby for quite a while. You work at two museums. You've read a lot of books. Let me ask you if you've ever heard the story. I'm calling BS on it, but I want to do some research. The TikTok was what is one of the, what is your favorite little tidbit of history that no one knows about? This person claims, and I and I think it's completely fabricated. I think there's no truth behind it, but maybe you've heard it. You've probably even heard real of modern day versions from when you served. I'm sure it's it's something that the guys made up while sitting in foxholes. They claim that the Army Air Corps intentionally dropped um, care packages that were meant for the U.S. troops on the German side. But in these care packages, which that's not the far-fetched part, right? Right. The far-fetched part is, as a form of psychological warfare, they included extremely exaggerated and oversized condoms so that the German army thought the American soldiers were all hung and they were like man beast. I call <laughs> bullshit on this story. I think it's funny. I'm sure it was made up by some guys sitting in a foxhole, but I've never heard or read any true context of this being even remotely true. <laughs> I, I've never heard that before. I'm not going to say it's not true. But, you know, my dad says it best. 95% of all truth is based on a rumor, so start a good one. Yeah, <laughs> that's the truth. So, yeah, so my um, my brother, who was a, he was a jarhead, Desert Storm era, uh, him and his, I guess it was his wife, my sister-in-law, who found this, I guess, in an attic uh, at, a, at a previous house that she lived in. I don't remember the whole story, but it was just something that she had it and she knew it was old. And when I went up there to visit, um, yeah, they're in Yardley, PA, you know, kind of north of uh, up near Washington's Crossing, kind of north of Philly there, right on the on the Delaware. And uh, she goes, hey, I, I think I have something that's from World War Two. And I think you would like it. So she hands this to me at the dinner table. I was like, it's one hugely over exaggerated. <laughs> I don't know if you can if you can read it. Individual chemical profile. No way. <laughs> this was not planned at all. This was not planned. No. He didn't tell me about this. This wasn't, this isn't some cooked up production <laughs> that we did for a laugh. I just told you about this story on TikTok, <laughs> And before he choked, I said, it's one over exaggerated, but no, he showed me a prophylactic kit. This I, is awesome. I, I, you I gotta, told you you were close. You got to take pictures so. of this instruction manual. So we include it on the website. I don't know if you can include it or not. Oh, oh I can include that. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, we can. Well, this is an 18 year old. I mean, that's draw. Wow. They actually show you how. Can you read me those instructions, please? For our enlightenment. Okay. <laughs> so number one, number one, this is great. This is, this is the forties. Number one, pass your water. So take have a an empty bladder. Yep. Take, take a leak. So, okay. Then I'm going to try to be as fragile as I can with this. Wet the soap cloth and make a lather. Because these are now not that, lubricated. Right. That would be 
this part here. And I guess it has something that has it. I guess it activates when you get it wet. Okay, kind of like a almost uh, <laughs> like um, it. You know what that looks like? Obviously, it's not. That looks like the old school cast materials they would use. Yeah. That's what it feels like too. That's exactly what it feels. But like. it probably so, has a soap or some sort of cleaning agent in it. Yeah, yeah. I think when I think when it gets wet, it kind of activates it. So then, scrub your junk, thoroughly wash it, uh, and then if no water is available, use the ointment anyway for the protection it will give. And that's step three. Break off the tip of the metal tube. Is that a spermicide? And what's that? Is that a spermicide? Do you think? I, I'm I. It's something. Well, no, it's not. It's not going to be a spermicide because this this is more like the lubricant. No, this would. This is going to, I guess, kill whatever you may have contracted. Okay, so it's like a topical chlamydia killer. I, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So squeeze about a quarter of the. Contents this of this the alone makes this podcast episode worth listening to. Here we go. <laughs> you gotta gotta stick that in there. And the condom and st- or your urethra. In your urethra. Oh, what the? Yeah. Nice. And uh, yeah, squeeze it into the tube of the canal and then massage it gently with your thumb and forefinger after injecting the ointment inside of you. And then you rub the rest of the ointment over the entire length of your stuff and bag. <laughs> what it says. And adjacent abdomen and thighs for at least three minutes. This seems like Thank a ruse you. to cause the guys not to be able to perform to get them back <laughs> That's kind of what I'm thinking. So, yeah, this is just like you decontaminate yourself. The fact that you got to uh, put something in your ure- urethra and flush it out before yeah. while trying to stay romantic. Now, do you ask the the, the lady friend to do this? So, no, this is this is afterward. Oh, so this is post post coitus. Oh yeah, yeah. Once you remove this, this... the 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 protection. Right, right. See, this, I, I no, thought yeah. you were going down the steps of applying said device to one's personnel. I wasn't aware we we're at the post-coitus. post-coitus. Yeah, yeah. This is something that, that wow. it, it should be used as soon as possible after each sex exposure. Wow. So again, I think this is to help prevent chlamydia, the STDs. Wow, is what this is. Yeah. So how about um, let me see that condom again? Is that goat skin or is it like latex? It's no, it's not a condom. Oh, I thought I like, oh, I thought you were holding up something earlier. I thought it was the condom itself. So you just have the package, but the condom's not in there. No, oh no, there's. Um, I don't think there is one. Yeah, this is for protection against oh, venereal disease I got you. only. I got you. This is yeah. This is your after. This is the next morning. <laughs> so now the question is. Is who does that house belong to before your in-laws moved into there? <laughs> exactly. And what did his and wife why think? Why didn't he use it? And why didn't, why he, didn't he use it? And why did he main? Why did he keep it after he got home on leave? Why didn't he clear that out of his <laughs> Footlocker? I'm sure there was plenty of things that he didn't want mom and dad to potentially find out about. But I'm glad right. he did because now it's in your collection, and you're the only person I've ever met that has a postcoital <laughs> STD um, combat system <laughs> in their collection. <laughs> Glad I get to follow that up. Um, we're going to go with number two just because we're going to keep in the theme of Marine Corps. <clears throat> you jealous yet? Not really, but it's nice. You got one? 
No, I don't. I just don't have a desire. I don't know. For those of you playing at home who can't see what I'm talking about, this is the original Hollyliner Tropical Sun Helmet. People like to refer to them as pith helmets. Um, I got this one. You know what I like the most about this? Not that I get to wear it, but this gets to show me what the rare Holly liner was made of. Same material. So mm. this is the same material that the Holly liners broke down. And so, and it's literally cardboard with cloth glued to the top of it. And so this, I will, I have my Hollywood Holly liner, which is made of plastic to look like this. And now I know what the material looks like. You know, I've had this longer so I can try to find a, a shirt or something. You know what this actually looks like up close? It looks like the Dickies uh, khaki jean material. It's very except for the the yeah. pattern and the lines a lot is a lot smaller. It's soft like them too. Yeah, um, and you can kind of I don't know if you can really tell, but you can see where the 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 cloth is kind of coming undone from the compression. Um, real quick because I like to give a little detail on here. Um, Holly Production Company was originally a manufacturer of loudspeaker components. They actually made the cones and loudspeakers. Same material. But we're going to skip all that. We're going to go down to the company. It was founded in 1917 by uh, Jesse Holly. As we know, we said they're doing uh, cones for PA systems and loudspeakers. But during wartime, you got to switch over. In 1936, Jesse Holly invented the patented tropical-shaped fiber-pressed commercial sun helmet. Now, this is in 1935 before we broke out in war. So what do you think the sun helmet was pretty much commercially available for to their Jeff Cop setup? Hmm. Take a guess. Who would be, before wartime, who would benefit from the sun helmet? I give up. Although Holly's helmet was originally designed for civilian use, including being marketed for the Boy Scouts of America as the Holly Trooper, Although the Holly Trooper was directly sold to the Scouts by the Boy Scouts of America, the Sun Hat never replaced the official <laughs> Scout Hat. So he was trying to get this to replace their floppy hat. And, of course, people who had the money to go on Safari would <laughs> use them too. Uh, the United States military adopted the Sun Helmet design, designed in 1940. Holly Products and the International Hat Company won military contracts to manufacture hundreds and thousands of the pressed fiber Sun Helmets. Uh, and then, as we know, the original design for the M1 helmet was adopted by the United States for military use on June 9, 1941. The helmet shell, known as the Hadfield Magnesium Steel Helmet, was first manufactured by the McCord Radiator Company, whereas the fiber liner interior was designed and produced by Holly Products Company. Now, as we said, this is basically a cardboard hat. And even though it was a sun helmet, um, what they found out especially in the Philippines and Guadalcanal and making a toll is when you're doing amphibious landings with a cardboard helmet liner, they don't tend to last very long in the tropical heat. And I'm sure you've done this as a kid. I don't know if you've done this since you've been a living historian, but how many of us at home, raise your hands, have ever put on an M1 helmet without the liner in it? <laughs> and the thing <laughs> rattles around like a bucket. They don't work. Sadly enough, when I was up at the event in Georgia, which we never got to talk about, the uh, Lakeland, Georgia event was fantastic. There's a video on my YouTube. I break out my brand new GoPro. It's in 4K. Go check it out. But there was a young cat who just got in a hobby, and he had on an M1 helmet with no liner, and he had like a Jeep hat underneath it just to make it work. And it's times like that I, I wish I would bring one of my second helmets, but I was like, no, nah, that doesn't work. But um, I, I 
you know, it's funny, growing up in Ohio on Rickenbacker Air Force Base, my brother was in Civil Air Patrol, and they would go to the PX, which interestingly enough is where I bought my first ever self-purchased cassette tape, which was Iron Maiden's Only the Good Die Young. <laughs> <laughs> but he, him and his friends would buy old military gear there. And he first M1 helmet I ever seen, I couldn't tell you now if it was a front seam or rear seam, but he bought it there and he didn't have the liner for it. So as kids, we'd always put this helmet on. This thing don't fit for crap, but it turns out because we didn't have a liner. But anyhow, so I decided, you know, when I first got this, I was actually going to take this to the first um, event in uh, Fort Morgan, Alabama, which was the 75th anniversary of Tarawa, but I didn't want to risk it getting destroyed going down there and wearing it because i thought it'd be cool to wear around the bivouac but i was just like you know what it's not worth it with the sweat and all that the thing survived this long and i looked at a couple of these on ebay and this was the only one that didn't have cracks and a lot of times you see them just like the holly liners themselves they have cracks in them and they're deformed and so i opted to keep that one that one did not come with the ega i actually had to buy it here's the other interesting thing this one actually has the chin strap is leather a lot of them, it's khaki. And so um, a lot of times you don't see them with the leather chin strap on it. But it actually does have the Holly Tropical Company stamp on the inside. So that's pretty cool. And you can see yeah. kind of how basic and rudimentary the headband is in there. It's in great shape, though. Yeah. There's, no, there's a couple, like, I don't know, here in the back. You can kind of, there's some spider webbing going on. But it basically <laughs> just sits in here on my bookshelf and it's good to go. Yeah. Okay, it's time for your number three. Okay, this one. So I kind of cheated. Um, it's not. It's not an artifact, but uh, it, it's 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 about who it is. Uh, so this is when uh, I got to meet Colonel Robert Morgan. Uh, there's going to be some glare here, yeah. uh, but I got two eight by tens for him to sign. This one, you know, just. Uh, his uh, his staff picture, and then one was from with the whole crew of the Bell uh, when they came when they came home on their you know publicity tour, uh, and this one he signed to Jeff. Uh, best of luck to you, Robert Morgan. Uh, so, yeah, again, it's not it's not an artifact, but this is something that has has hung you know on the wall ever since I got it, and it's personalized. Um, and yeah, and it, it's personalized, and just you know everybody's probably heard the Memphis Bell, but just to remind people. Down here, um, you know, he never married Margaret Polk, which is the girl that he named the Memphis Bell out of. You know, that was his girlfriend. I think they were actually engaged. Uh, he didn't meet her in Memphis on business, like the movie says. You know, he actually met her in Walla Walla, Washington, uh, when he was in training before they flew the Bell across the Atlantic. Um, but you know, when he came home on the publicity tour, things started getting crazy. And you know, Robert Morgan was—he he grew up very well to do. You know, his family grew up with the, the Vanderbilts sure. in North Carolina, right? So, um, you know, Clark Gable uh, was hanging out with Bob Morgan in London in different places, and and they got into a lot of trouble. Robert Morgan loved to drink, loved women. And, of course, on this publicity tour, he's, you know, from city to city being wine, women, and songed. And, and Margaret Polk, I think, you know, she got wind of what was going on. She broke it off. And I think, I don't know if he was already with Dorothy at the time, but but he named his B-29, Dauntless Dottie, after the woman that he actually eventually did marry, one of his uh, multiple wives. Uh, but he led the first B-29 bombing raid on Tokyo on 24 November of 1944, and I believe he, th he flew at least 25 missions in the B-29. So 
just that you know, I'm, I'm glad that's down there because he, it's more than the Memphis Bell. It's more than the B-17. It's more than all the superlatives. And we talked about this in another episode. People want to yeah. go back. We had a big Memphis Bell episode. Um, but he was just really an incredible man. Um, and I, I just definitely one of my childhood heroes. So this is one of the pride. You know, I'm just proud of this that, you know, hangs with the rest of my artifacts in my office. You know, on the um, sitting across the room from me, um, I don't have any. It's it's cool because it's post war and it is original. Um, I got off eBay, and according to the story, the lady's father served in Japan after the war. He was doing the police duty, and he brought back a silk Japanese flag. So I have that, but that's not one of the things I'm going to include today. It's in things in great shape. Um, got an audible. Do you want to hear about my float, my invasion vest or my EE8 telephone? <laughs> I'll let you choose. <laughs> the telephone would be cool. Okay. Because I think we've talked about the invasion vest. And if not, go to WTSPWorldWar2.com. And I think if you click on the uh, history through photos, it's included in there. Now, I have three of these. But this one is in the best shape. And they do work. I actually rebuilt two of them. And just and you guys can go on our YouTube channel and you can see how I did this, but just a little Is that the leather case? No, this is the okay. uh, this is the best. It's super stiff. And the next video I'm gonna do, I'm actually gonna take this out. I have two of these and I'm gonna soak these in for breeze. Not for breeze. Yeah, for breeze. The the fabric <laughs> yeah. softener. Because on both of mine the, the the flaps are so taut that they will not snap close and the protection cover so i'm going to take the phones out and soak these in fabric softener yes they're going to smell a little velvety but i'm hoping to uh this one was in great shape yet the first two i got they were stored like somebody's outdoor barn they literally had mud dopper nest in them and were super dry and brittle but one of the first things i did i was talking to jeremy who's been on the podcast they were on a signal core up out of georgia he's actually the organizer of the lakeland event and I said, hey, where can I get replacement phone cords? Because the cords are very dry and brittle. He's like, well, are you looking for function or museum quality authenticity? I said, I'm just looking for function. He's like, you're a computer guy, right? I'm like, yeah. He's like, one of our guys just uses the universal power cables off computers. They fit perfectly. Yeah. And so that's what I did. And which I later discovered that it's interesting that not all have the same color wires. Um, but I was able to pull the wire tensioner um, off of the old ones and use a punch to open them back up and put it back on. And so you can see where I replaced the wire. I took the full unit out and cleaned them up. Like I said, they do work. The generators work. Now, for those of you not familiar with the E8 phone, when you see them in the movies and are quickly winding this generator, I got to make a call. You, you think that that's charging the battery? No, that's just making the phone on the other end ring. And if... <laughs> If you want to test your EE8 generator and you're not quite sure if the generator works, if you're not a puss, take your hand, put it over all three, and turn that knob, and it'll give you a little shock. And that's how you know it works. But uh, this particular one, and actually the case itself is in great shape. It says Signal Corps U.S. Army, um, telephone EE8, and actually has the serial number on the bottom. I can't find a production date on it. I think if I pull it out, there'll be one. Um, Bakelite, Bakelite phones, really cool. Um, 
I think the mouthpiece on them, I took this one out. One of them I had had been rebuilt. It had like a 1945 mouthpiece in it, but the earpiece was from 1942. Um, this one actually has a December 1943 mouthpiece in it. So this one's relatively early. And it's really quite simple and basic inside. You basically have three wires. Um, you have your, and that's for the microphone side. And these things are actually, it's a testament really to how durable they are. Because the only real repairs I had to do was replace the wire on the handset and then uh, just open up the system and put some um, put some lubricant in the generator knob and then basically take some um, light sandpaper and scrape the battery terminals. And they run off of D batteries. Right. And what I do for the events, I just take regular D batteries and wrap them in electrical tape so they don't say Duracell on them. And the earpiece on this one is dated. <laughs> uh, it just says WE Company D14195. This I don't see a date on it, but it's pretty early as well. Um, just because we're a historical show. Uh, the M19. Nope, that's for the flotation device. So we pulled an audible. Um, the EE-8 military field phone. The EE-8 military field phone was used by the Signal Corps from before the war through Vietnam War. It was housed early on, as Jeff implied, in a leather and then canvas. And then uh, last production had nylon case straps after changeovers in the material in 1967. Now, basically, these straps serve two purposes. One, they were a shoulder strap, but more importantly, which is why you see them all torn up, you would find a tree, right, or even a pole, and you would take the strap, so you would find a, a pretty heavy-duty tree, and you would wrap the strap around it and secure it, so this thing would be fixed. You know, obviously, you'd have one in your, your CP tent and then possibly a foxhole, but otherwise, you would find a tree somewhere centrally located near wherever and you would strap these things to trees and that's why the straps would get so torn up from the bark uh, do, 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 do. the u.s army field telephone ee8 and the ee8a and the ee8b is a portable field telephone designed for use on either local or common battery telephone systems so basically what that means is these terminals you have three wires and you can, two of them are simply for communication. And then if you're running two of them daisy chain using the D-cell the batteries. There's a third terminal which you can connect to a switchboard that has a bigger battery system. So then you don't have to worry about the batteries in here dying so quickly. Um, did you see, um, battery telephone system. The talking signal range varies with the type of wire used and the condition of the wire, whether it's wet, dried, or frayed, and the, whether the wire is grounded or in the air, um, as local battery telephone talking range of up to 11 to 17 miles, which is pretty damn good concern, 11 miles off of 2D batteries between the two systems. Um, is uh, typical, suitable for coarse area usage. The phone are contained in a case approximately 9 by 5 inches by 7.5 inches by 3.5 inches thick, um, and they weigh about 9.7 pounds. Of course, everything back then was heavy, so what's another 10 pounds on the back of the poor signal core guy, right? <laughs> That includes the battery. The EE-8A and the B are a little larger than the EE-8. Uh, the main difference between the EE-8 and other models is the selection of the case lid has been cut out and replaced with a flexible material to enable the handset to be hung on the case in the position to hold down receiver. 
Now, what that means is you have a hold down receiver right here. And so you can basically put the phone that hangs on it. Um, this actually also acts as a Morse code. So if your handset breaks, you can still communicate using Morse code. Um, on the phone itself, it's kind of acts like a walkie-talkie. So when you hold it up to your ear, you gotta when you want to talk, there's a two-way lever on here. You gotta press it with your thumb in order to talk. The reason I love these so much, even though I don't do a signal core impression, is you take this to a living history event and you get yourself, you go down the lows and get yourself some black outdoor speaker wire meant for like um, putting um, ambient speakers in your bushes, kind of like a Disneyland. And it looks very similar. And you uh, put this in your tent, you drag that wire all the way down to someone else's forest tent, someone who likes to participate. And when kids come up, when they think phone, they think cell phones. The fact that this is a phone and it call, and the fun thing to do is pick it up. Okay. When they pick up, tell me you want to order a pizza, which they always love. And so this is just another great device to get kids involved at living history events. Uh, let's see. After the start of World War II, the EE-8 in the leather case with the leather strap was standard issue. However, experiences once again in the Pacific <laughs> showed the right away that the leather did not hold up. And the EE-8 leather case was replaced by the olive drab canvas case with the uh, web strap. The EE-8 and the EE-8A uh, utilized an aluminum chassis with the EE-8 uh, chassis being steel. So I'm thinking this is an EE8B chassis because it's pretty hefty steel from when I took it apart. And um, like I said, I, I have three of them, but um, what this one was the best one. And the other two, I kind of mixed and matched parts. And then like the third one that doesn't work, I'll just sell to somebody for an affordable price and they can use it and rebuild it for their collection. Because I'm at the point in my life where I don't... My stuff I collect... Um, if I don't have a place for display for it, or if I have multiples of it, I just get rid of it. Let somebody else take it on. I already have two phones when I need three, four. So I'll just get rid of the third one at some point. Let somebody else start their collection with it. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because that kind of segues before we go. That kind of segues into um, a guest I'd love to have on here. Um, you, know, you mentioned the Jeep cap earlier and, and just talking about, you know, giving stuff away and letting somebody else, you know, have a part of your collection. That's exactly how this guy has been. I met this, I, I met him back in, uh, I guess it was June. And, um, you know, we just really hit it off. And the guy's got an incredible collection. He's been a, a living historian for I don't know how long. He's part of the ADT jump team. And um, he does Vietnam stuff. He's, he does a bunch of stuff. He gets to travel a lot. You know, he owns some World War II vehicles. And he owns an incredible amount of, of uniforms and gear and weapon systems. And he's just an all-around great guy. He's actually a, um, a, a current uh, active-serving uh, Air Force uh, JTAC right now and up at Fort Hood. And um, he's just a really, really nice guy. So uh, hopefully, you know, let that be a teaser. In the next couple episodes, I'd love to have Steve on and talk about his reenacting experience and, uh, and what he gets to do. Um, speaking of next episodes, so this spring break, I'm heading to Arizona for a week. Nice. and kiddos. And one of the destinations is going to be the Pima County Air Museum. So I would love to be able to do a podcast either there or sure. close enough to there to where it makes a cool background for me. Yeah, we can make it happen. <laughs> I'd love to try to do that. Yep, we can make it happen. Um, I'm down for the cause whenever, man. As always, just uh, book it. One more thing I, I'm not going to show because it's in my closet, but being six foot five, it took me six and a half years to find a class a uniform jacket that fit me 
And so <laughs> I do have an Eisenhower jacket. Um, my primary army impression is the first ID. Now, because of my age and the amount of responsibility put upon me at the events I do, because I have the ability to um, get people to do what we need to do, especially during tactical events and physical reenactments, my rank is a lieutenant. I don't want to have a lieutenant rank, class A uniform with just a lieutenant bar and a first ID patch and nothing else because it'll just look fake as hell. If you guys know anything of the history of the first ID, if you can, I've looked, I can't really find anything. If you can send me a list of the campaign ribbons, even if I did like a 1943 impression, I just want a couple of campaign ribbons to put on there that the first ID of someone who served, it would be in the rank of lieutenant, at least a few campaigns would be on there so that it looks more authentic instead of just having, you know, a patch and a butter bar on there and then that's it. So um, if you guys know where I can get campaign ribbons, I know there's people out there who make them. I just, obviously I don't want, you know, citations and silver stars and any of that offensive stuff, but a few, just a, one or two campaign ribbons on there to make it look like that when I'm doing my impression that I'm not just fresh out of boot camp. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Weren't they part of Operation Torch, right? Yeah. So but, there's at least one there. Yeah. But I, the other thing is where can I get them? Um, I've looked on at the front. Um, they have, oh. they have the, you know, the American and the infantry tabs, but, and they got the patches. Um, I've looked at world war two impressions. I know somebody here used to make them, but if you guys know an out, you know, an outlet for campaign ribbons, at least, you know, the main ones, um, email us at mail call at WTSP world war com or send us a message through our Facebook page because, um, I, I want to get my impression put together so that it looks better because we all know how the sofa Facebook heroes are. They love to pick apart everybody's, oh, you got yourself a Class A uniform, but it's blank there, fella. And not only that, I have, I, I got a uh, original infantryman with the you know the, the leaves on it, the infantry battle badge. Combat infantry yeah. badge. And obviously, yeah, if I'm going to put that on the uniform, I have to have some campaign ribbons or it just won't look right. Because really, you're in combat where? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, but, there, you know, back then, there's so there's so many ways to get around that. I mean, the supply of that kind of stuff, nobody freaking cared. You had one jacket balled up in the bottom of your bag. And if you got liberty, you threw it on. Yeah. And it, a lot of times there was nothing on it. And, and you may have gotten your CIB in hand before you got the campaign ribbon. For me, it was the other way around. When I earned my, my combat action badge. Uh, I'd been out of the army for two years. I didn't even know I earned it. I didn't even <laughs> see the orders for it. Somebody said, you know, you got this, right? You need to, you know. Uh, so I actually verified it literally a year and a half ago. Nice. I finally tracked down. I, I mean, because, yeah, whatever. Who cares? Um, but I finally got a copy of my orders from 2004 from the combat action badge. So when people would look at me like, oh, wait, you were there? You were there for that long at this period of time? Why would you not have this? You know, how could you possibly have not earned a CAB? And I just found out a year and a half ago, you know, actually to confirm it to, to where I would put it in my shadow box because I didn't want to do that until I saw it, make it official. So, yeah, World War II, who cares? You know, I mean, it happened. It's not about, you know, what the by the book or the uniform regulation, sure. the 670-1. It's what you had at the time that, you you know, how often they get to wear the right jackets. It wasn't very often anyway. So, Well, your microphone's I, starting to break up. Your connection in a week, but before we before I let you go, it's interesting you say that. I want to bring us up earlier when I was reading about the uh, Merrill's Marauders and they're talking about boot camp. 
third battalion fancied themselves as being chow hounds and chow, chow pirates they would steal food as much as they could and they got to the point that they had an unofficial division badge they took the can opener out of their 10 and 100 kits and they put them on their lapel as if they're division badges <laughs> and i thought that would be cool if, like if you're putting a merrill's marauder impression together and one of the other things they had for their uniforms is um because they were allowed to pretty much wear whatever they wanted and so they all wore the hbts with the high-waisted um cargo pants but one of the things they wore was the five button pullover sweaters and I've been trying to find some reproductions online and of course Google being Google now whenever I go on Instagram there's like advertisements for the modern day versions it's like I, I searched for five minutes and now I can't go on YouTube and uh Instagram without advertisements for the modern day version so um I thought it'd be kind of cool to put together a Merrill's Marauder impression but hey, thank everybody for hanging out for another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. Jeff and I will try our damnedest to get some more effort episodes to you in a more consistent, timely manner. But thank you guys for hanging out. And as always, if you know anybody who is around in the 40s and they um, have all their cognitive mental facilities with them and can uh, remember some stuff, send me the information and I'll set everything else up. Email us at info, I'm sorry, mail call at WTSPWorldWar2.com or hit us up on our Facebook page. But as always, thank you guys so much. And this episode is brought to you by our friends at Act Computers. If you need any IT support, even if you don't live in the state, just head over to act-capecrawl.com. And as long as you have internet connection, they can connect to your computer and help you out with all your needs. They can also help you with two-form authentication and antivirus protection. So give them a call, 239-283-1120, or head over to act-capecrawl.com. And as we said before, please head over to our website, WTSPWorldWar2.com. Sign up for Patreon, and also go like and subscribe us on our YouTube channel and check out some of the videos, especially the one we did up at um, Lakeland where I broke out my new GoPro 7 and so it's a nice 4K format. Um, for Jeff Copsetta, I'm Don Abernathy. This is another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast and we will talk to you all next week. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>